Um, in this sermon, we've been looking at Matthew, the teaching of Jesus, um, and in verse chapter 24 and 25, uh, it's interesting because in, we get half a chapter about the end times, well, about the next, the end of the age. Um, we get a half chapter about the end of the age, the destruction of the temple and the victory of Jesus. Um, and it won't be a secret. You'll notice it like lightning in the sky, you're going to see it. So that's half a chapter. But then we get a chapter and a half which talks about how to wait for that time, for, for the end times, which is two different things. And a chapter and a half about how to wait. So there's obviously something in, in that. For example, um, at the start of chapter 24, uh, actually as I start, you'll notice we've got some sermon notes on an app. I've popped up a QR code because it's easier to scan it if you want to see the sermon notes on your phone. So we'll pop that on the screen, I think, for a sec. Great. So in chapter 24, we look at, there's an example, it's going to, I'm going to come back like it was in Noah's time, no one's going to know when it is, it's, everything's going to feel normal, and then bam, I'll be back, okay? Um, he says it's like two people in a field, uh, or two people grinding wheat, so they're just going to be going about their normal daily business, everything will be normal, and then I will return. Now Jesus also says, even I don't know when I'm going to return, only the Father knows, don't you think that's amazing um, that even Jesus doesn't know his return? So if, if people come up to you and say, I know exactly when he's coming back, um, I'd probably quote Jesus at them at that moment. So, and if it's good enough for Jesus, it's going to be like, um, just like you aren't prepared for a burglar, I'm going to come. And so Jesus starts to say this thing of keep watch, be vigilant, be prepared. But last week we learned about the ten virgins and, and the main message in there is, be prepared for the long haul. It's going to take a while for my return and be prepared for it. I think the early church must have held on to this sort of stuff because they, they assumed Jesus was coming back within the next you know, 30 years or whatever and they really thought he was coming back very soon and 2,000 years later we're still saying that he is coming back soon and, and it, that's the right attitude to have, to be prepared, to wait, to be vigilant. Um, in these parables there's also judgment uh, in each of them. Those unprepared are cast out. Those who are not faithful are cut to pieces. And Jesus repeatedly warns us to remain faithful. Watch and be ready because he's coming. And it's quite a sober thing. I don't know how you felt reading through the parables over the last few weeks. There's always this sobering thing of there is, there is account, he will hold us to account and there is judgment um, also in these things. Now, also looking through these parables, one of the things I've found is as I don't think they're meant to be super hyper-analysed right to the last little brushstroke of, of this piece of art that Jesus makes. Like any good poet um, or artist, Jesus paints this beautiful picture and, it, and it's left to us to interpret where we're at. So each of us brings something different into the parable of how we interpret it. And and it's pretty, pretty nice, but sometimes I'm, I'm peering into the brushstrokes and looking at the individual brushstrokes and it's starting to get confusing what it means. What does Jesus mean? Is this gold or silver? Does that matter? Is that actually a thing? And I start to get worried about this tiny detail of Jesus' artwork that he creates in these parables. And what I'm finding is I actually, several times in the last few weeks and, and this week, I've had to actually take a step back from Jesus' beautiful story and say, hang on, What's the main themes here? Let me just take a step back and grab the broad sweep and then I can start trying to look a bit more close again. I find, I've been finding that as I get into too much detail, I start to lose the meaning and get stuck on the science. So I'd encourage you, keep taking a step back with these parables. As soon as it starts to get confusing, 
take a step back and take the broad sweep. Right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a read of this one. So um, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to read in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 14. So this is today's parable, beautifully written um, by Matthew here. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them. While he was, go- um, while he was gone, he gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned and from his trip, and he called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more bags and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I've earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I've earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'll give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I know you were a harsh man, um, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, Take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. And they um, will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right, so where do we take this parable? Well, let's start with a couple of easy bits. This guy's a wealthy man, um, so that, that heads off. And he's going on a long journey, and he hands three of his servants a huge amount of cash. We'll talk about it in a sec. Um, the word used here is the word doulos, which in the New Testament is translated between slave or servant. Um, and it's interesting, in this passage, I think the, the translators have accurately put it as servant um, because in our minds, I think we often go back to the, the, um, the industrial-scale slave trade of the last couple of centuries. But slavery in Rome at that time was a bit different. I don't know if you know, but during Jesus' time, one-third of Rome were slaves. Slavery was different. Now, they had their huge cultural um, take over a whole nation and make them slaves sort of stuff. That's That's terrible. But they also had people who weren't financially making it could enslave themselves to someone. Um, And that's where we start to look at calling it a servant. I think for this example, uh, this, this master is giving millions of dollars to these guys. So the image of slave doesn't quite work in our culture. 
But if you start to think of servant, but a servant who is not in control of their own fate, they can't choose to resign, they are a slave to this master, but they are someone who is skilled and educated and who can actually run a whole business. Okay, so I think the word servant there is pretty, pretty close. Um, it's interesting, it is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6 and a few other times when he says he is a slave to Christ. So it's the same, same phrase in those. Okay, um, but about this money. So one, in, in this translation, the New Living Translation and also the NIV, they call it bags of gold, but it doesn't actually say that it's gold in the, in the original Greek. It calls it a talenton. Now, a talenton, we actually translate to the word talent, and some of you will know this as the parable of the talents. Um, but a talent was basically a, a bag of stuff, and it was usually silver or gold. We don't know how much stuff this guy gave over. It was a bag of silver or a bag of gold. We don't know which. Um, if it was silver, um, there's another part of the Bible that actually says that a, ta- a bag of silver contained 6,000 um, denarii, which is a coin. And one denarii, this is going to get confusing, one denarii was a day's wages. So if it was a single bag of silver, that would be 6,000 denarii, which is 6,000 days' wages, which in our current time is worth about $900,000. Okay, so the guy who didn't get much, the boss gave him 900000 bucks, sort of. Now that's if it's silver... And it might have been gold. Gold at that time was worth 10 or 13 times more. So it's actually around about 10 million bucks worth for the, for the cheapskate. All right? So let's just, let's just get it in perspective. These are not small amounts of money. These are enough to run a business. Okay? However we look at it, this is enough money to run a business. Okay? As a side note, I, th- I thought this was interesting. We, we looked at Matthew 18 a couple of months back about... Uh, a guy who owes money to his master, do you know that was 10,000 talentons? So that was 10,000 bags, and it actually says gold. That's enough for the national debt of a large country these days. Okay, So when you look at the grace, grace of, that the master offers in forgiving him of this debt, it's phenomenal. It's the entire national debt of a medium-sized country. Okay, back to the servant. That's, I get distracted by the money, and the funny thing is the money's not the point of this sermon. Uh, of this parable so let's come back to it all right so back to this servant now this is think slave servant it's not just a, a you know a butler from a manse or something this is um, a guy who, ha- who is a slave to his master but back to the servant what does this servant actually own himself I think this is an important question for our application today the servant doesn't own anything Nothing that he has is his own. He is a slave to the master. He doesn't own anything. Everything he has has been given to him by the master. I think this is an important distinction for us in our culture. He doesn't own anything. Um, it belongs to God, but, he, but God entrusts, well, the master, it belongs to the master and the master entrusts it to him. In a Christian worldview, this is a challenging bit. There is nothing that is mine. I have been given everything by my creator, by my God, and I, choose, I, I then have a choice how to, how to use it for him. Um, and that's possibly where this sermon gets the most tricky. I, I, as, as humans in Western society, I think we can often think that we own our stuff and it's for us to protect it, it's mine. And that's not the Christian view. Jesus 
um, says that it, it's, all, it's all God's and he gives it to us to actually steward. That's a challenging thought. And so what I'd like to do for a minute, we'll chuck up a, a survey uh, on the screen. You get a moment to actually chat with the people around you. What do you have, what resource do you have that you are able to steward for God? Now, obviously, money's going to come up on the board. But I wonder, if you, if you scan that code, it'll throw up a, a survey. You can give a few answers. If someone sitting next to you doesn't have a phone, maybe you can take, record some from them as well. So we'd love, in a minute, we'll actually see your responses. Try and share the phones around a little bit. Chuck up your answers. Um, what do you have which you are able to steward for God? So we'll just give you three minutes to, to do that, and we'll see what answers come up. Okay, we've got some answers coming in. We'll keep it going for another minute. Time and money are the big ones. Hospitality, relationships. I'm really interested in some of the small ones you're putting up, um, like education. Holy Spirit, interesting. My garden, nice. I need a place of tranquility every now and then, so come and use that. Finances, time, money, skills, education, music. Yeah, skills, composition. Just a few more seconds to make time and money and skills bigger. No, I'm joking. I'm not trying to fudge the results. Okay, thanks guys. So we'll come back to the front. We'll leave these words up just for a few more minutes. But if we can drop the music, can you? Thanks. So what I'm hoping that you'll notice with, with the words, if the music can fade, yeah, great. What I'm hoping that you'll notice with these words, you've done a perfect job. This is not just about money, okay? I don't want you to think that at all. But I wonder, if you were a slave to this master, I wonder how you would invest that million or 10 million bucks. Or if you're brave and you think you've got the ability, I wonder how you would invest that 50 million bucks. All right? He's, gone, he's going away on a journey for a long time. If you're the brave one, he gives you 50 million bucks and, say, and says, look after this for me while I'm away. I wonder how you would invest it. I'm not going to put that survey up because <laughs> that's the interesting one. But the master gives amounts according to the people's abilities. Here's an interesting bit, and I'm hoping that this feels more freeing than controlling. He actually assesses the ability of these three servants, and he gives to them according to their abilities. He actually gets it fairly right, if you notice. He knows what they're able to do. Now, this should feel freeing for us. God calls you to be you. He, he won't hold you accountable according to what others can achieve or do. He actually wants you personally to invest in his kingdom to, to, get, to make the choices you have with what you have and with the abilities that you have and to serve faithfully. He wants you, um, he's not going to assess you against others, but our accountability is just between us and God. So this is one of the challenging things, but also one of the freeing things. You don't have to compare yourself to others. You just have to be faithful to your master yourself. And, it, and he asks you to continue to work out what that means. So the meaning of this parable is not about money. Now, the sad thing is, through history, there's been a lot of theology that says you can invest in and buy your eternal life. They haven't probably said it that simply, but I've lived in Europe for a long time. 
And then there's, and there's these big chapels which are built because people have actually attracted money in service to God. So kind of good news for us, you can't buy your way into heaven with money. But he's asking us to invest. So what does this mean? Well, I think here I want to take a step back from the parable. We should have enough knowledge um, from all of our hundreds of sermons we've heard in us, um, amongst us, but in both campuses. How are we saved? It's not, you can't buy yourself to heaven. It's not by money. We're not saved by our actions. So you can't be saved by your choices and actions. Um, you can't be saved by being good and doing good things. We can't earn our salvation. But the interesting thing is these parables talk about our behaviour all the time. And so this is where we come to the Protestant two-step shuffle, I call it. It's an awkward dance that starts confidently and it, and it starts with, I am saved by faith alone. Okay, This is what we believe. We are saved because of what Jesus has done and we can't buy our own salvation. So the first step of this dance is we are saved by faith. But then there's this awkward little shuffle that says, yeah, but I need to do works as well. Now, even Paul joins in on this dance. Let me read you James chapter 2, verse 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So you've got this dance of, I am saved by faith, we are saved by faith, and there's nothing that can take that away from us. But there's also this little shuffle that says, but my faith needs to be evidenced in how I behave and the choices that I make. Um, Paul, his last line is just so strong, isn't it? If it is not accompanied by action, this faith is dead. Okay, Interesting one. And this parable would say the same thing. This parable says that your behaviour matters somehow. The choices that you make and what you lay before God matters. Well, let's have a look at these good servants. That's the nice easy bit. Um, what does the master say to them on hearing their news? And this is where I like the NIV version a bit better than the one I just read. He says, come and share your master's happiness. So as he sees their faithfulness, he then says, come and share in my happiness. The interesting thing is this has nothing to do with the amounts that they make. One guy made an additional five talents of, of something and the other guy made two and he says exactly the same thing to both of them. They have both served faithfully with what they had and, he, and to both of them he says, come and share in, in my um, happiness. The amount's not the focus. What a master that shares his wealth. What does it mean to share in God's happiness? We're going to start a, a sermon series in a few weeks because we want to focus on this question of, of what is God's love for us. Because this bit where the master says, come and share in my happiness to a slave, to a servant, is just a beautiful image. 1 John chapter 3, it says, See what great love the, the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. Now, I know this is a parable, and then this verse is talking about reality, but this is the same message. This God... Um, who bestows on it, who gives us these gifts and resources, this health and this educational, all the things you put up. If we serve him faithfully, he then says, come and share in my rest. 
and we have the right to be called children of God. What an amazing master we have. If you want to look a bit more at God and his love, I'd encourage you to read the book of John, which is, I think, the gospel of love is a way of summarising it. So you can have a study of that. But also Romans 8 is a beautiful place to start. If you want to look at God's love, and we're going to come back to this in a minute, have a read of those. To contrast this, um, I worked for four years as a, I started as a network engineer, but very quickly my job became to manage the cloud services of a software company. Um, we did library management software. I know that sounds exciting. Um, and when I arrived, we were a team of 27 staff. We had 60 libraries across the state. Often they were um, military or jails um, who had libraries and we provided their software for them. Um, or top-end private schools, which was quite fun. When I, when I started, 60 schools used our cloud platform, and I was the person whose job it was to, to develop this platform. In four years, I'd got it to, we had 200 libraries. We, in my area, we had an income of over 800,000 bucks, and it only cost us 80,000 bucks, including my salary, to run it. So I was bringing back a tenfold increase every year at the end of my job, which my boss was loving. Okay, so, and I want you to contrast the difference here. The master in the parable says, come and sh share in my happiness. That wasn't my experience working for this guy, uh, yeah, who I eventually said, I, I think I'll move on. <laughs> so, um, but an earthly master sort of just claims this gift and keeps it to themselves. That's the normal way that we do things. But here, this master says, come and join in my happiness and have, have more so that you can do more. So, now let's have a look at this wicked servant. The thing that I found most interesting studying the parable this time is the wickedness of the servant stems from the attitude towards their master. This servant has an incorrect view of the master. This servant thinks that the master is cruel and reaps, and he says this phrase, he reaps what he doesn't sow. We'll come back to that. And, and this servant thinks... Well, I don't, it, we don't actually get to interpret his motivation here. Why did he bury the treasure? It, we, don't, we can have a guess. Now, it's either fear or he doesn't want to, the boss to get any more money than he has or he's just too anxious to use it or doesn't have the skills and so is afraid. But what you'll notice is that he has low expectations and for some reason takes an unwise route and he buries his treasure. I wonder how you go on relating this to yourself and how, how you are in this. You'll notice also that the wicked servant was focused on things that he had no control over, like the master being harsh or losing the gold. He kept worrying about things that he couldn't control. In contrast, the other servants... Um, so the, sorry. In contrast, the other servant focused on the things they could make choices about. And so the other servants, they actually focus on what they have choices over. The poor servant focuses on things that he has no control over. He actually comes across as powerless. I didn't know what to do or I was too afraid and so I buried it. Now, that, that servant acts from a place of fear and anxiety. And I think this is an interesting part of Christianity. I, I've worked with plenty of people and I've probably seen it in myself as well, where I serve God and the kingdom more out of a dogged determination or out of fear or anxiety rather than serving God because of a love, a love response to him and what he's given me. And I, I wonder if there's a bit of that in, in some of what we do. 
that, that we misinterpret who God is. We don't understand how much he loves us. And so then we come from this place of fear and anxiety. Oh, I hope I'm doing enough for the kingdom. Or I hope I'm giving enough to get to heaven. And we come from this place of, of fear and anxiety sometimes in, our, in, our, in the way that we serve God. But I, but I also wonder, um, imagine the anxiety of holding, hiding this bag of gold in the ground, of digging the hole and hiding it, and it's a long time. I wonder how many sleepless nights this servant got because he was worried that someone would find it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it's like hiding that sort of thing? And also, these servants probably knew each other. I mean, I'm guessing here, but I imagine they knew each other and they would have seen how each other was investing. The two who were making more and more money, if I was the third servant, I'd be noticing that pretty clearly and thinking, oh, I wonder if I've made the wrong decision, even before the master comes back. And so these, this thing of this, the third one feeling the powerlessness of where they are, trying to do it in their own strength, and also having this anxiety of watching what he's not doing, I wouldn't want to live in that position. That feels like a big weight on his shoulders. And so we come back to the first two of, of them loving their master, faithfully serving their master, and, uh, and, yeah, and just the freedom that that brings, especially as the master says, come and join in my happiness. So what do we learn from this parable? What's the motivation for stewardship, stewarding what God has given us? Do you have a view or an experience of God that allows you to operate out of that love for God? I think that's the starting point that I've received from this parable this time. Do I know God and what he has given me? And from that, that will then infuse in my, what I can put into the kingdom. My, my service and love for God will actually come from that position of knowing what he has done for me. So I feel like the first step in this parable is get closer to God and get to know God, get to know his love. Spend some time in the scriptures seeing what he has done for you. And that then becomes the motivation for your action. So rather than trying to be a good person and do the right thing, I actually just act, I, I invest in the kingdom from a love of what he has done for me. It's quite a different way of, of, of seeing it. Be motivated by faithfulness rather than success. And it's interesting as a Christian over these years, desiring success in mission is no different to desiring success in business. Um, it's self-seeking. And I, I, there's a part of me that I don't like that wants to be successful, that wants to have an effective ministry. Now, you'll notice there's a really fine line here because, yes, my spirit also wants an effective ministry for the kingdom. I want a, my time to be well spent but at the same time, my ego and my internal insecurities want to be effective and successful because they want to feel better about me. And you'll, you'll have this tussle of trying to be effective. But what I'd encourage us to is let's come back to the love of our Father and come from that place because when I am close to God, I know I'm okay and then I don't have to worry about being successful because I just have to faithfully serve. Let me give you an example. Um, we did local ministry in England in a, in a village of 4,500 people. We, we invested heavily for 10 years um, in, in local mission. We got local kids' work going. We were meeting with a third of the local kids in the area. Uh, we were doing loads of stuff. And we, we'd invested for 14 years in this ministry. But over time, I started to get a little disillusioned. And by the 14th year, I, 
we, we did a 24-hour prayer vigil for the summer club that was coming up. And I remember sitting in the big Anglican church. My shift was 3 till 4 a.m. or something, one of those early shifts. And I was praying with a very um, sincere heart. God, we're doing all this work. We've been doing it for a long time. And we're not seeing many people come to Christ, to, to come to know Christ and give their life to him. I'm seeing there's loads of reasons why this work is effective and beautiful. But my real heart is I want to see people coming to faith and coming to know Christ. And we're not seeing a lot of it. And so my prayer with God at this early hour of the morning was around that. We just really desire to see people come into faith. What are we doing wrong? How do we need to change? And I had a, a really strong sense from God that he just said back to me, just enjoy sowing the seed of my kingdom. Continue and just sow the seed, free, like feel free in it, and you don't have to worry about the end because I'm the master who reaps what he doesn't sow and who takes what, what he didn't plant. And, and I really felt God saying, just continue to sow, to invest in my kingdom, to sow the seeds of the gospel into these young lives. And the actual harvest is my job and you don't have to worry. It's not your job to make your mission successful. It is your job to faithfully serve and to continue to, to um, seek the kingdom where you are. And for me, that was a really freeing moment. It's always hard to capture those deep emotional times. This was a big, deep emotional time of, of just a freedom, a weight off my shoulders. I don't have to perform in worldly standards or in my own strength. I just have to continually faithfully serve God out of a love for him and a love for those around me. And so that, that for me was really a, fr a beautiful freeing moment that I think I'll carry with me forever. Um, okay, and so I, I'd love to encourage us, put your eyes um, on God and his love for you and let that motivate you in your ministry. But then we come back to this parable which says that you need to be faithful until he comes again. You need to serve with everything you've got. If you are a slave of Christ, nothing that you have is your own, but it all belongs to God. And how will you invest it? Whether it's your health, your mental capacity, the education you've received, the skills you have, or the money that you have, how do you invest that back? How do you make choices about what you have so that you can give it into the kingdom, invest in God's kingdom? So I think that's how I'd summarise this parable, is how are you going at capitalising on the kingdom, about bringing your resource and giving it to God. There are a few verses that really challenge me. One is, seek first God's kingdom and all his righteousness, and then everything will be added to you. And it's way too often that I seek first my own comfort, or I seek first a bit of sleep, I seek first a bit of space, and it's just too often. Um, and I wonder if as, as part of the body of Christ, Imagine what we'd be doing if we said, no, I'm going to seek first the kingdom with everything I have. I'm going to love God with, with everything I've got and then love my neighbours as myself. So I'm going to ask just two questions. Um, uh, it's, three. it's three. I'm going to ask three questions. If Jesus was to return tomorrow, how would you spend your next 24 hours? If Jesus was to return tomorrow... How would you spend your next 24 hours if you knew for sure? And I think this is the expectancy that the parables keep talking about. I'm coming back, be ready. If he was going to come back in 24 hours, how would you spend your, your next time, bit of time? 
If you were to love God with everything you have and love others, others as yourself, how would this next week be different? If you were to love God with everything you have and love others as yourself, how would this week be different? And my last question. If you were to seek the kingdom of God above all else, trusting God will give you all you need, how would the trajectory of your future be? So if you were to seek first God's kingdom and then trust God to give you what you need, how would your trajectory for the future be different? Yeah. So God asks us to be faithful and to serve him, to be ready for his coming again. And this is a real, these parables are such a challenge to us. How are we going to invest in the kingdom? So I'll, I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, the, one of the things we don't want to encourage here is for us to, to just worry about ourselves, do it in our own strength, Father, to try and be good because we just can't earn our way to salvation. Father, we're so thankful for this gift that you've given us of salvation, of being free, of being reconciled to you. Father, I pray that it's from this love that we will be compelled into action. Father, that we will have compassion for those around us, that we will listen to what you want us to be doing with our time, our space, our money, our career, our education. Father, I pray that you'll challenge us to lay it all at your feet at the foot of the cross and, and just be doing your will there. So I pray that you'll give us the courage to put our trust in you. And Father, we're so thankful for the, for the end that says, come and join in my happiness. Father, thank you for the freedom there is in serving you. So I pray that you'll challenge us today, this week, this month, this year, to really love and serve you with our whole heart. Amen.